you can turn to Matthew chapter 6 as we are continuing our study of the Lord's Prayer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, using it as we've been going through the Catechism and learning some basic doctrines of our faith. We're almost at the end now. This is the next to last question. In this, uh, in this series, this part of the Catechism on the Lord's Prayer, we have been making our way presently, we're presently making our way through the six petitions that Jesus taught us to pray. We have covered the first three in which we pray particularly that God would have his proper place in the world. As those who are in Christ, we love him and we yearn for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to have his place as God over all. So we pray that his name would be hallowed or glorified. We pray that his kingdom would come. And we pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God to have his proper due. And then after studying these three petitions, we moved on to the last three petitions of the prayer, the second part that follow. And here we're encouraged to pray because we know of the gracious care that God has for the people that he has redeemed. And so we pray for his church. First, we ask him to give us our daily provision. We've looked at that. Then we pray in particular about our sin. Two requests, two petitions pertaining to that, that he would forgive our sin that we prayed about last time and that he would deliver us from our sin. Those are the things that we seek from God as our Savior, from Christ as our Savior. Forgiveness and deliverance from our sin. So last week, prayer for forgiveness. This week, we'll look at the prayer that he would deliver us from temptation and sin. This is the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Let's confess together what our catechism says about this question. It's question 106. Question 106, what do we pray for in the sixth petition? In the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. As those in Christ, we do not want to be drawn away from him. Something that we really looked at this morning. It's always interesting how much the morning and afternoon sermons will will correspond to each other. We love him. From him we have new life. And we do not want anything to disrupt our communion with him. We love God's law. And we know that we live in harmony with God and with others when we follow his commandments. And we want to walk in those ways then that are pleasing to him. That's why we pray that God would not lead us into temptation and that if he does, he would support and deliver us so that we will not fall into sin when we're tempted. And when we do fall into sin, then we pray that he would deliver us from the evil so that sin will not have dominion over us. We sin in many ways. We saw that even this morning that we can begin hardening our hearts to little things that we know that we really should do, that God has shown us. We can start hardening our heart and resist those things. 
And then it leads to more and more, we need to be delivered from evil then, is the, the idea. So it's a prayer in which we recognize that we're totally in God's hands and that it is his will for us in Christ to deliver us from our sins. Ultimately, he is, he's going to completely deliver us from all of our sin. And we look forward to that. In our supplementary scripture reading from Mark 14, 32 through 42, we read about how Jesus called his disciples to pray in a time of very great temptation that was coming upon them. He himself, God's own son incarnate, was praying this very thing. He urged them to do so as well. He was praying, lead me not into temptation, wasn't he? He prayed very earnestly, but they slept. And the result was that they fell when the time of temptation came. They fell and Jesus did not fall. There is a powerful lesson for us here as there was for the disciples. What an impression it must have made on them. Can you imagine? You know, here is their Lord and Master humbly crying out, deliver me from temptation. And the disciples proudly saying, we won't fall. We don't need to pray. And just sleeping around. As those who love the Lord, they learned the hard way that they needed to pray earnestly for deliverance from temptation. Now let's turn our attention then to the petition itself in Matthew 6.13, which is my text. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what we're looking at here. The first thing I want you to notice about these words that Jesus himself teaches us to pray is the inescapable implication that comes from this petition. It is clear from this petition that God leads us into temptation. Jesus would not have told us to pray that God would not lead us into temptation if that's something that God never does. It's something that he does do. Jesus himself knew all about the Father leading him into temptation when he was on the earth in human flesh. Do you remember what happened right after he was baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit for his public ministry? You know, this is often what happens, isn't it? We know somebody comes into the ministry and they're all encouraged and whatnot. And then right away, boom, trials and temptations. Mark 4.1 tells us, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil was the one who tempted him, but it was God that led him to be tempted in that place. Jesus was tested to see if he really believed that God was good and gracious in the wilderness and to see if he would follow the Lord no matter how hard it might be. How different was Jesus' conduct in the wilderness than Israel's conduct in the wilderness that we looked at this morning? What a contrast. And that was by no means the last time that Jesus was tempted. Throughout his ministry, Jesus encountered many temptations And they all came through God's providence, as every temptation does. From the Pharisees who persecuted him, but who would have loved him if he had only modified his message a little. What a great temptation that was. Just modify it a little, and the Pharisees would have been delighted with Jesus. And he wouldn't do that. From many would-be followers 
who were offended when he told them that he was not just a prophet who could give them liberation in this world, which is what they were seeking, immediate liberation in the world, but that he was the very source of eternal life that they needed in order to be saved. And they all walked away. And he had temptation from his own disciples who could not, during his earthly ministry, understand his message and who tried to dissuade him from going to the cross. The cross was hard enough as it was to have people telling you, oh, you can't do, you mustn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You remember Jesus reacted to Peter, you know, get behind me, Satan. That's what Satan was telling him. But above all, he had the temptation of the cross itself. If that's the temptation that he asked the father to take away, if it were possible, he asked that. The cross itself was not something that he wanted to do, nor should he have wanted to do. So he cried out with great earnestness, yet with full submission. What I mean by not wanting to do is it shouldn't have been appealing to him to say, oh, great, I'm going to go and be rejected by the Father. That's not a desirable thing. He wanted to do it because of the outcome, but the thing itself was more repulsive to him than anything that you've ever been asked to do by God. Anything that, any trial you've ever had, it doesn't even compare with what it was for him to, to bear that infirmity, that, 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 that uh, trial. Jesus is not the only one, though, who was led into temptation by God. There were the disciples who were tempted when Jesus went to the cross and who did not pray when Jesus wanted them to do so. God led them into temptation through all the events of Jesus' arrest and trial, crucifixion, such that they questioned the goodness of God and whether, he was doing, whether God was in fact in control in doing what was good and right in that situation. Perhaps it seems strange to say that God leads his people into temptation. Maybe that seems strange to you. But in Hebrews eleven seventeen, the scripture uses the same word for temptation to tell us that God tempted Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, and the word is the same as the word tempted in our text, he offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. God tempted Abraham in the same way that he tempted Christ with regard to the cross, giving him something very difficult to do that he did not want to do, but he was ready to do. He didn't have to carry it through, of course. God stopped him. We might also mention Job. You know all the trials that Job had to endure. Trials are called trials because they are tests. They're temptations to see if we will trust God and follow him in hard times, if we will continue to believe him, if we will doubt his grace or believe the lie that, of Satan that God is not doing right by us, that he's mistreating us, that he, he did me wrong. He didn't do what, what was just. That, that's our temptation. If you're familiar with the history of Job, you know that it was God who led him into temptation. God is the one who pointed Job out to Satan and who asked Satan in Job 1.8, have you considered my servant Job? God's basically saying, I want you to lead this guy into temptation. I mean, he's, he's setting this up. He didn't wouldn't say that, but that, that's the idea. And there is, he says, there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man, 
one who fears God and shuns evil. Satan began to afflict Job, but it was God who led in the whole affair so that Job was correct when he said that God had afflicted him. God himself said that Job was right when he said that. The Lord has afflicted me, he said. Uh, God gives and God takes away. He knew that ultimately it was God's sovereign will. Satan was the agent, but God did this to test Job and to show that Job was a true son of God and to strengthen Job so that he was more, became a man that was nearer to God and more holy through that whole experience. Satan wanted Job, of course, to bolt from God, to turn away from him, to apostatize. But God's will was he brought it about for an entirely different purpose. Just like he, Satan wanted Jesus to die on the cross. But he had an entirely different purpose than what God had for Christ to die on the cross. God wanted Christ to die on the cross. Satan wanted Christ to die on the cross. But their reasons were entirely different. So you see clearly that God does indeed lead us into temptation to test us. But understand that God never entices us or encourages us to sin. He never tempts us in that way. James makes this quite clear in James 1.13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. James uses the same word that is in our text that says, lead us not into temptation. It's the exact same word. And the same word that was used of Abraham, as I mentioned in Hebrews eleven seventeen, God tested or tempted, you could say, Abraham. The English word is different. The original language is this very same word, tempted or tested. So which is it? Does God tempt people or does he not? It says he cannot be tempted with evil. He does not tempt. And then it says that he did tempt Abraham, which is what's true. The answer is that he tempts us in the way that Hebrews is talking about, but that he does not tempt us in the way that James is talking about. Now, well, that's a con- contradiction. No, it's not. It's an entirely different matter. He does not come to us as Satan does and say to us, you know, he, he, doesn't bring a, he, he doesn't with his voice say, you, you know, you can't really trust God. You know, it, it would be better for you if you disobeyed here. God never says that to anyone. That's what Satan says. You know how in the beginning, in the garden, he warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the, 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 the forbidden, not to eat the forbidden fruit. And if they did, they would surely die. God, he he sought to dissuade them from that. He never encouraged them to eat. That's what Satan did. But God brought them into the place where they were subjected to that temptation. It was his will to do so. He pleads with us, that God pleads with us to pray against temptation, just as he urged the disciples to do at Gethsemane. Jesus did that. He gives us commandments that call us to do what is right and to abstain from evil. God doesn't tell us to do evil. He doesn't say it's a good idea to do evil. He shows us his own glory and even his terror to dissuade us from sin, not to entice us to sin. 
He promises to give us support in temptation and to rescue us from it if we look to him. God's constant message to people is not to sin, not drawing them to sin. He even chastens us to dissuade us from sin because of his great love for us. Far from tempting us to sin by enticing us, he does many things to dissuade us from sin. The way he does tempt us, again, is by bringing us into circumstances where we are tempted to sin. He leads us into the place of temptation. Now, why does God do this? Why doesn't he just remove all temptation from us? Wouldn't that be great? Well, he's going to do that one day. But uh, we're given various reasons in Scripture as to why, in this present time, he leads us into temptation. He does it that we might grow in our obedience. Think about it. Your obedience grows when it is tested. When you face temptation and don't give in to it, that strengthens your obedience. Sometimes people who sin in certain ways want to get help from other people who have sinned in the same way. That's, that's not the people to get help from. You see, that's silly. The person who knows how to help you the most is the one who is tempted and did not give in. They said no to the temptation. Because when they said no, what happens? What happens when you say no to temptation? It increases. Someone that gives in to temptation right away is a person that didn't do well in the temptation. But somebody that said no, what does Satan do? He turns up the temptation, makes it stronger and stronger and stronger and greater and greater and greater, just like he did with Job. That's the person that you want to get help from because they know how to endure. If Job had given in at the start, Satan would not, he would not have had to do very much, would he? He was just like one little temptation, one little affliction. Satan's there cursing, I mean, Job's there cursing God. He would have been done. But he had to do a whole lot more. The person who is able to help us the most is who? Jesus Christ. Because he was tempted in every way that we are and never sinned. He was without sin. That's why we're told in Scripture to lean on Christ. Because he knows how to fight him. It's not the person who gave in to it. You can, talk, you can commiserate with them about the miseries that came from giving in to the temptation. There's some encouragement to that. But the one we really need in the hour of temptation is Christ. We're told in Hebrews 5.8 that though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And that suffering was turned up and up and up and up and up on the Lord Jesus. And he never did yield to the temptation. He did not learn obedience by giving in to temptation, but by giving in to, but by not giving in to it when it became stronger and stronger. One of the reasons God led him into temptation was to teach him to obey. And he leads us into temptation to teach us to obey. Secondly, he leads us into temptation to teach us to love him more. Now, does that sound crazy? Well, you need to think about this. When you're tempted, you have to choose between God and whatever the temptation is. If you're going to resist the temptation, you have to make a comparison between God and the temptation. This thing that's drawing you away from God, is that the better choice? Or is God the better choice? Now, this is a stupid question. Of course, God is the better choice. But you have to deal with that. Because the temptation is real and it's strong. And at the time, it can seem like it's a better choice. Because we're sinners. And, and, and you have to do that. You have to look at God 
And you have to see how gracious he is, how desirable it is to follow him. You have to work through all of that. And when you do that, you'll love him more. Because if you have to compare him to something that's really drawing you, the more you look at him, the more you'll see that he is the one who is worthy of all your allegiance. It forces you to consider how precious he is and how you do not want to break fellowship with him to follow some stupid temptation. You know, like, Job's, like uh, Joseph said when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, you know, how, how can I do this great sin against God? I don't want to break my fellowship with God for this woman. Romans 5 lays this out for us quite nicely. It talks about how tribulation, which is trials and testing, brings about perseverance or patience. You learn to keep on serving God when you're being pulled away. You keep on, you keep on, you keep on. You grow, you grow stronger. And then how that perseverance produces character. You begin to grow and develop. I, I talked about that this morning with when, when the temptations come and, and you, or, or, or when, God's, when you hear God's voice. And if you resist God's voice and your heart gets harder, but if you yield to God's voice, then your heart becomes more tender and you grow. It, you, your character is developed. You become habituated in following God. And then we're told in Romans 5 how character produces hope. And how hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So when that character is growing, you begin to say, God really is working in me. You're beginning to grow and you're seeing that. And there's an, a, a tremendous encouragement of hope that comes. And then that hope brings you to see God's love. Because in that trial, like I was just talking about, you're, you're there comparing the temptation or God. And as you continue to do that over and over again throughout your whole life, and you see the beauty and glory of God, you grow in your love for him. That's how it works. We come away from temptation realizing how precious he is to us. Job said, I heard about you before with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. That's just a way of saying, I, I didn't even hardly know you before this whole event happened. And now I know you so much better. I love you so much more. I see who you are. Thirdly, God leads us into temptation to teach us to depend on him, on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our reading from Mark, we read how the disciples, especially Peter, thought that they would be able to stand in the coming temptation. That's why they didn't bother to pray. I'm, I'm kind of tired. I'm going I'm to get, get some rest here. When their master was praying and that they, especially Peter, fell. Temptation has a way of reminding us that we stand by God's grace, not by our own strength. If we're tempted and we don't pray then we're going to learn that lesson the hard way. If we're tempted and we do pray, we're going to learn that lesson also, but in a much better way. It's through union with Christ that we overcome. It is through the gracious working of the Holy Spirit that we resist evil. So after that night in Gethsemane, the disciples were much more humble disciples than they had been before. They learned a very important lesson through that temptation in which they fell. Jesus learned an important lesson too through that temptation in which he did not fall. He drew near to the strengthening Father. So you, so you see that although God never encourages us to sin, 
he does put us into the place of temptation deliberately for our own good. So does that mean that we should go looking for temptation? <laughs> okay, we go, I want to find some temptation. Of course it doesn't. With the sixth petition, Jesus teaches us to pray against temptation. Yes, dear child of God, you have life in Jesus now. You have fellowship with him. He has given you a new heart that delights in God's law. His commandments are written in your heart. Do you want to live the beautiful life that he has called you to live? Do you not love Jesus and do you not want to be like him? Surely, then, you do not want to sin. But to your great dismay, you find that sin is present with you. You can relate to Paul in Romans 7, 21 through 24, when he says, I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Yeah, I've got a new heart given me by the Holy Spirit. I want to do good. But he says, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That changes there. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you're truly in Christ like Paul was, you want to be delivered from the body of death. You, you find the same thing in you, that there is this body of death. But you, you want to do good, but you find that evil is present, that you keep sinning. You don't want to sin. And you know that your heart is like, like kindling, and this temptation is like a spark, and you don't want a spark. Because you know what happens when the spark meets the kindling. So you say, Lord, no, don't, don't lead me into temptation. Jesus teaches you to pray that way. Yes, indeed, you should pray against all three sources of temptation. God is not a tempter, as we saw. He will not entice you to sin. But there are three sources of temptation. Three who do. What are they? The first tempter is the devil. I mention him because he is the original tempter. I mention him first because he is the original tempter. The one who first came to us with the notion that God can really not be trusted. What God asks you to do is really not the best thing for you. You know, he's kind of messed up a little bit in what he wants you to do. He's a little confused. He doesn't quite have your best interest in mind here. Maybe he's a little devious. Uh, the lie that God's way is not really the best way and that it would be better for us if we did not obey him. Remember what I said this morning about you obey in the darkness what you learn in the light. Because when you get in the temptation, the time of darkness, you start to say, well, did God really mean that? Did God really say that? Is that really what he, what he intended? Don't do that when you're in the middle of temptation. You can do that when the temptation's not there. You can, you can study it out and figure it out exactly what is. Well, but once you, once you settle that, it's not the time to do it when you're in the middle of the temptation. Jesus calls Satan a liar from the beginning, and that he is. He is the father of lies who did not remain in the truth. He comes to you with slanders about God, with hard thoughts about God, with thoughts that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. And you must pray against him. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Do not let Satan tempt me and draw me away. You don't want that. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter must have been thinking about, when he wrote that, about the time when Jesus told him to be vigilant, <laughs> 
because Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, to be watchful and vigilant. And Peter thought that there was no danger to him. And now he's urging all of us not to make the same mistake. A lion is lurking about that wants to destroy you. Be alert. That's what it means to be vigilant. Be watchful. The way of safety is not your own muscle, but it is prayer. The second tempter is the world, the source of temptation. The world is now under the devil's rule, so that even so much that he is called in Scripture the God of this world. Not that God Almighty is not still God over all, but the whole world lies under the wicked one in iniquity, and it lives in rebellion against God in a corporate way. The world is not following the Lord, and it does not want you to follow him either. It bothers the world's conscience when you follow Christ. It makes them uncomfortable. It makes them afraid. It reminds them of everything that they're trying to forget about God and about God's will. And so they're uncomfortable with you and they're going to oppose you and try to draw you into sin. That's why people get, that's why people tempt people. If somebody's doing the right thing, then people will come in, oh, you don't need to do that. Oh, you know. they'll, they'll try to pull you away from it. John the, the Apostle speaks of the world in this way. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. And he who does, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So with these words, John is reminding us that the world puts out appeals to you to love it instead of loving God. It says, come to me and do what I want and you'll be happy. Do what I recommend and you'll be happy. Come and indulge yourself in my delights. Find your life in the pleasures of the world. It's not just an abstract thing. It's, it's a seductress that is in Proverbs who calls you to come to her for pleasure. John says that if you love the world, you do not love the Father. The world is calling you away from the Father, not to the Father. This does not mean that you cannot enjoy food and wine and music and jewelry and the marriage bed. God gives us all of these things richly to enjoy with thanksgiving to him. And it is actually said in the scripture, it's a doctrine of demons to deny those things. But the world's way is to take these things, seize these things and take hold of them without prayer and thanksgiving, without reference to God's word and the directives that he has given us in the use of those things in the world, in the enjoyment of those things in the world. From the world's perspective, God ruins these pleasures. But from the Christian's perspective, the world ruins these pleasures. When we do not receive them from God's hand, they will never satisfy us as believers. If a man takes a woman in adultery, that will not bring satisfaction. If he takes his wife in a holy marriage bed, that will bring true satisfaction. They may satisfy those who are of the world for a time, rebellion, until they either end up in bondage to them or face God on the day of judgment. That's what a lot of people do. They start out with, with drugs to escape things and using drugs in an unlawful way. 
And then they end up in bondage to the thing that was supposed to liberate them and set them free. Did the exact opposite. That's how we need to understand these things. The third tempter is the flesh. That is our own flesh. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7 when he said, Who will deliver me from this body of death? He was referring to what the Westminster Confession calls remaining corruption. It's like a corpse that's tied on to us. Yes, the Holy Spirit has come to us. He has transformed us. He has changed our hearts. We've been born again. But we still find, as Paul said, that evil is present with us. We don't even have to be tempted from anything outside of our own hearts. Temptation arises from right within us, from within each of us. Galatians 5.19-21 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. These are all within us. The world and the devil do not have to stir them up for them to be stirred up. Now, the world and the devil are very good at stirring them up because the flesh is there waiting for them. But the flesh can stir it up on, their, on its own. So you need to pray against the sin that is within you. Pray that you will not be tempted by your own flesh. And pray that God will deliver you from the evil that is already in you. And that he will rescue you and set you free from it. So yes, God does not entice you to sin. But the devil, the world, and the flesh will tempt you as much as they can. They will not stop tempting you until they have gained the victory and brought you to total ruin. That's their goal. It's not like it's presented to you at first. Oh, it's just a little thing and it won't matter. No, the goal is to bring you all the way down to complete destruction and ruin, to separate you from your God. They relentlessly assault us all through the day. And if it were not for God's grace and help, they would certainly separate us from God and bring us down in sin. Yes, indeed, you should pray against temptation at every stage. Now let's take a little time to outline the the different stages for you. First, there is the temptation itself. That's the initial stage. Pray that you would not be tempted at all, that God would not lead you into temptation, that temptation would not come knocking at your door. In praying for this, you not only pray, prevent many temptations from coming to you because God hears your prayers. He withholds temptations that would have otherwise come and uh, for those who pray. But you also prepare yourself for the temptations that do come. How do you do that? Well, because when you pray that you will not be tempted, if you pray rightly, you think about how awful it would be to sin. And you think about how God is and how you want to follow him and how how good he is and how you want to follow him. And it prepares you to stand when the temptation comes. If you're praying, Lord, don't tempt me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have this temptation. I don't want to have this pressure. And then the temptation comes. You've you've, you've had some preparation, you see. Even, Even as it prepared Jesus, even though the temptation did come, he was prepared by praying in Gethsemane. That's the first stage of temptation. You pray that you would not be tempted at all. But then you must also pray against the second stage of temptation. 
when temptation has come and has actually gripped your heart. James speaks about this in James 1 in the passage we looked at before about God not enticing us to do evil. After saying what we read, God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He says, verse 14, James 1, 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. So what we're talking about now is the point at which the desire to sin is conceived, as it says, in your heart. You have decided, say, to eat the forbidden fruit. Okay, you're at that point. Sin has already happened at that point in your heart. But you can still pray before you follow through with the act. That you won't actually follow through with the act. It's very difficult at this stage. But many sinners have been able to find God's deliverance before they go on. In other words, you're ready to go on. Sin is conceived, but you pray and you're delivered. That angry word that you wanted to unleash all over somebody. You call on God and your tongue is restrained. You said in your heart, but gladly it didn't come out to the dismay of the one that you are going to unleash it on by God's grace. That sinful glance of lust can be checked. You want to go on looking and you pray and God delivers you. That kind deed that you are about to avoid can be done. What you had decided not to do that you should have done. That impatience can be checked. I experienced that kind of deliverance several times just recently when we were traveling. When I was tempted to be impatient, complaining began to rise because things were not going the way I wanted. And to call in the name of the Lord and be delivered so that instead of a bunch of complaining and, 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 and dis, disappointments coming out of my mouth about everything, I was able to say the will of the Lord be done and turn back over to him. He will deliver us in those times. I'd already sinned in my heart, but then God enabled me to be delivered. We can and should pray for others about this too. Do you remember when Abigail stopped, uh, Abigail stopped David when he was coming in anger to harm her husband Nabal? Nabal kind of deserved it. You all know, though, what a blessing it is to be stopped and kept from sin when you were heading for it. David was so glad when she did that. Pray for yourself and pray for each other. And uh, you, you parents, um, I, I have admonished you to watch your children. And when you see them starting to give way to sin, you, you can often tell that. Before they have sinned, before the angry word has broken out, before they have reached out their hand to grab what is forbidden, you see them struggling, you see them in the battle to gently take them aside and remind them how undesirable it is to sin against God, how miserable that sin is, and how God is able to help us and deliver us if we pray. And pray with them and pray for them that they will not sin. And you train your children that way. 
to say, deliver me from evil before the evil breaks out. Many times you will see them experience deliverance at this stage of the temptation. And you can rejoice with them that God has answered. Loved it when that would happen with the children. You know, that having a, you could see a really bad attitude that was getting ready to break out. And then you go and pray. And then you come back and they're all good. Everything, they're happy. There's, there's, there's no longer that, there's no longer that, that temptation. But then there is that final stage when you have actually given way to sin. Okay, so we have the initial stage, the, the temptation to come at all. And then we have, okay, the temptation has come and I have been, it's been conceived. And now we have the third stage, the final stage, when you've actually given way to the sin. As James says, the desire that has been conceived in your heart has given birth to sin. Now, I said before that when it's in your heart, you have sinned. Well, yes, you have. But you have not sinned in another way. We could say you have not sinned. In other words, you're tempted to adultery, but you don't commit adultery. You haven't actually committed adultery, but you've committed it in your heart, which is not the same thing as actually committing it. It's not at all the same thing. And uh, we, we need to recognize that. It's a violation of the same commandment, but it's not the, it's not the same thing. If you, if you say it's the same then you have a very distorted outlook on things. We, we had a whole sermon on that before. I won't go into all the detail now. But, you know, that angry word, okay, now it has rolled off your tongue. That lustful look has been taken. That duty has been avoided. That impatience has broken out in grumbling. Temptation in that time has overtaken you. But Jesus also says to pray that you will be delivered from evil in this petition. You know what this is like. But whenever this happens, you know that God has made an excellent promise to his children. First Corinthians ten thirteen, he promises that no temptation has overtaken you, not just come and tempted you, but no temptation has overtaken you. But such as is common to man, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, the, the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. This is talking about a temptation that has seized you by the throat, as it were. The natural course from here is that, as James says, it brings forth death. Sin, when it is full grown, he says, brings forth death. The temptation has no intention, as I said before, of stopping until your relationship with God has been completely destroyed. Its aim is to separate you from Him forever. That's where it leads. But if you are in Jesus Christ, sin can't do that. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So pray that you will be able to escape from the temptation and this sin that has you by the neck, and he will deliver you. A true Christian can fall into sin, but he cannot live there. God will not let him spiritually die, which is the same thing as living in bondage to sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. And the way he stops you is by bringing you to your senses, like the prodigal son. You come to the place, you come to your senses, and you return 
to your heavenly father and ask him to have mercy on you. Make me as one of your servants, you know, like Peter, when he denied Christ, you're convicted and you go out and you weep bitterly because of what you did and you come back and you walk with Jesus again, not like Judas, like David and his adultery. You become miserable, as he said in Psalm 31, right to the very marrow of your bones. And you cry out to him in a time when he may be found. And he pardons you and he restores you. Yes, brothers and sisters, sin is our enemy. We're to pray against temptation to sin at every stage. Before it comes to us, when it has come, when it has gripped our hearts, and even after it has brought forth sin. Jesus teaches you to pray against it. Pray for deliverance and God will grant it. Let me encourage you, last of all, to not let up in your prayers until you have complete deliverance. In fact, until we all have complete deliverance. We're in this together. We pray for one another and for ourselves. Turn to 2 Kings. Let's look at this last here. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14 to 19. And what I want you to see here, do not let your prayers for deliverance be half-hearted like the prayers of Joash. As the king of Israel, Joash was given a special opportunity to pray for deliverance against his enemies. To his credit, he expresses concern when he saw that Elisha was dying. He knew that God had worked greatly through the prophet Elisha And now he was afraid that the war chariots of Israel would be ineffective when Elisha was gone. Look at verse 14. I mean, yeah, verse 14, 2 Kings 13, 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. How are we going to be able to withstand our enemies when you are gone? It was good that he had that concern. Uh, Elisha encourages him to seek the Lord for deliverance. Look at verse 15 and 18. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on your bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Assyrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. In verse 19, Elisha rebukes him for doing this in such a half-hearted way. Verse 19, and the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. I want you to understand something here. The issue is not so much some kind of legalistic number of times that he should have struck it as it is his attitude in doing so. If he had done it once, he might have been told to do it three times. The problem was that he was half-hearted when he had this tremendous opportunity to seek deliverance. 
And we can be that way about praying for deliverance from our sin. Do not be like that in praying for deliverance from temptation and evil. Don't pray for a bit of deliverance for yourself. Maybe you just want the embarrassing part of your sin to be taken away. Maybe you just want a partial, maybe you kind of want to play with it still. No, that's not the way to pray. Maybe you like being tempted, but you don't want to give in. You know, it's kind of fun to be tempted. It's kind of, kind of desirable. That, that kind of, that, that's striking it three times. Should have done it five or six times. Don't pray for a bit of deliverance for yourself in the church and then stop. Don't be too easily satisfied. Right now, we have a lot of sin in our midst. And we need to pray fervently for deliverance from that sin as a congregation. Our Lord has promised complete deliverance from all temptation and all evil in the end. It is his intention to completely and utterly disable and remove all temptation from his people, including the three tempters that we looked at before. The devil, meaning the devil and all who are in league with him, all the demons and such. The world, meaning the present system that encourages everyone to have uh, all without obedience or acknowledgement of God. And the flesh, meaning what Paul called this body of death that we carry about in ourselves, this remaining corruption and sin. God is going to deliver us completely from all of these. Don't make an alliance with them. There is no place for half-hearted prayers here. God has a complete inheritance for us in glory, and we should pray for nothing less than that. He calls you to be holy and without blame before Him in love. You need to pray for nothing less. He will deliver us from every trial and every temptation in the end. You're to pray for nothing less than that. Israel might have had a much greater deliverance if they had sought it. They spent 40 years in the wilderness because they did not pray for deliverance and go to fight. And then once they did go into the land, they stopped short before the deliverance was complete. They were content to have a few Philistines around because they were too hard to drive out. Some of the Canaanites remained in the land and gave them much grief. And they did not seek God to keep them from sin that they might be holy, that they might be holy, even though they were warned to do so and and promised that God would deliver them if they would seek him. Again and again, they fell into idolatry and immorality, which marred their lives and their nations and hindered the fullness of enjoyment of God's blessing. Do not stop short in your prayers. We're going to have complete deliverance because that is what King Jesus prays for. And God will hear him. The church will, to use the language of Obadiah in verse 17, be completely delivered to possess our possession. We won't possess it partially. We'll possess it fully. Obadiah 1.17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. It is yours to join your faithful Savior and Lord Jesus in praying for this great and glorious deliverance from all temptation and evil. Our Lord has told us to pray for this, and he will do it. Marvelously for us, King Jesus will not stop short like Joash did in praying for our deliverance. God will answer him. All the kings of Israel, all the people everywhere stop short, but Jesus does not stop short. And that's where our hope lies. He is our intercessor. 
He is our king. He is our master. And God will hear him. He strikes the earth all that it needs to be struck with those arrows. If you're truly in him, then you will join him in those earnest prayers. And when they are fully answered, you will be in heaven with all the other people that he has redeemed and united to him through faith. Please stand and let's indeed pray to our God. Lord God, we thank you so much for the hope of deliverance that we have from sin. We pray, Lord, that you would indeed lead us not into temptation. We don't want to be tempted. We don't want to have temptation come near us because we know how how easily we can be led astray. But Father, we also pray that when temptation comes, that you would deliver us from it, that you would deliver us also from the evil when it has been conceived in our heart or when it has taken hold of us in such a way that we're even in bondage to sin. We know that it can be very hard to, when, when we are in bondage to sin, it can go on and haunt us for, for a long time. But we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to come and cry out to you. And we can trust you, O Lord, that you will ultimately deliver us. We pray, Father, that we would see your hand working in us every day. And we know, we thank you that even now when there are those sins that we struggle with day after day, that we can repent each day of those sins. As we saw before, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we also pray, forgive us this day, that that carries on into the petition. And so also it carries on to lead us this day, not into temptation, that every day we are looking to you for this. Deliver us this day from evil. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be delivered this day, though we may fall the next we pray, Father, that though that we would not, we look to you, O Lord, we cry out to you, and we pray that you would help us to make this part of our lives. We pray in relation to what we saw this morning, that we would not harden our hearts so as to become a people who become accustomed to resisting your will and your call, obedience to you and trust in you and faith in you. But rather, Lord, we would welcome your voice when it comes to us, that we would respond and that we would obey, and that we would do that which is pleasing to you, that we would become habitual in doing so, that we would become a holy people. We know that in Timothy, we're told to discipline ourselves to godliness. But Father, we learn from this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, that even from the reading in Mark 14, that we can't stand on our own. We must cry out to you. This is where deliverance will be found. Father, help us to do it with the, with the six bangs rather than the three bangs, we pray. Father, help us to do it in an ultimate and complete way. Help us to take vengeance on sin and to take delight in the way of our Lord. Lord, there's so much change that needs to happen in these old hearts. And we cry out to you. We are not there, but we cry out to you, O Lord. Give us a zeal for holiness, a delight in the calling that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Powerfully. Amen. All right. Receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, 
dominion and power both now and forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.